Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at OnStrategy1. That's the number one. Uh, you can also see the creative work associated with all of our showcases on our website. Also connect with our guests and see all of the episodes that we have available. I think we're, we're at like over 100 episodes at this point. Uh, you can see them on our, on our, uh, our website. That's on strategyshowcase.com. And this week, I've been dealing with a bit of a head cold, so forgive my possibly uh, altered voice at this point. And we have a conversation today with Ian Leslie. And Ian brings us a wonderfully counterintuitive perspective on bias and productive uh, disagreement. Confirmation bias is something as strategists we hear a lot about and we report to clients a lot about it, but it is an issue for strategists ourselves and not just for people in media and politics and culture and religion. It can actually be something that dumbs us down and makes us as strategists vulnerable to attack and being sort of undermined and sidelined because it, it actually creates the same situation that we report on, which is that we tend to ignore that which does not agree with our point of view while accepting and drawing like a magnet everything that does. And again, that is a perfect example of confirmation bias in the negative. However, Ian Leslie talks about a kind of a counterintuitive view on this. He says that individual biases can make group discussion even more powerful when it's correctly uh, managed. He does a, a great job of sort of articulating this idea that he has called collaborative conflict. And that conflict in the workplace and in strategy and in discussions among people has a force multiplier effect uh, as a benefit. And it's really, uh, it's really uh, interesting to look back on the fact that in business culture, in agencies, on client sides, we're actually encouraged to avoid conflict. And we think about the idea of compromise and we're told to compromise, we're told to get along. Uh, but Ian has this really interesting uh, perspective on all of that. As I mentioned, he, he labels it collaborative conflict. So it is Ian Leslie. He's a writer and author. He's also a former planner. His blog is called The Ruffian. I first heard about this from uh, Martin Weigel in our episode a couple of weeks back. And his new book is called Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm really excited to have this conversation, Ian, because, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a hot-blooded Irishman. So you know, we always sort of love to live in, in the midst of conflict. Or we're pretty good at, we think we're pretty good at dealing with, it, with issues of conflict, being that we sort of felt repressed throughout all of our generations. So I think that we're always, we're always uh, this is a sort of a subject that is uh, close to my heart and my interests. I've had a chance to read your book, and I came across um, uh, in last month's Harvard Business Review, uh, the, uh, the, the article that I'm referring to is, uh, is Managing a Polarized Workforce. And so I read that also. And I just think it's perfect for this conversation. So that said, hot-blooded Irishman fueled by a Harvard Business Review and your book is excited to talk with you. Welcome. I'm absolutely terrified now. Uh, <laughs> Don't blame you. <laughs> thank you. It's very good to be here, Fergus. Um, so tell me, for you, why this topic of uh, conflict and disagreement? What, what was it about it that attracted you to it? Hmm. Well, I think I I, I got interested in it um, just because I, I spent uh, uh, you know too much time on on social media and just observing all the terrible disagreements and toxic arguments that take place out there. 
made me start thinking about it. And the first stage of this was was me thinking, huh, well, may- maybe I should write about um, how to how, how people should be essentially how people should be nicer to each other and avoid all these bad arguments. But the more I thought about it, the more and the more I kind of researched, um, the more I thought actually the deeper problem here is that partly because so many of these toxic arguments are so visible now, um, the deeper problem is that we avoid argument and confrontation um, whenever we can. I mean, I think that's always a, a problem, well, not always, but often a problem in that, you know, we, a lot of us are quite conflict averse, particularly at work. Um, but I think it's been exacerbated by this kind of very public stage where you see so many horrible, toxic arguments and confrontations that we, we've become even more nervous of it. And I, I, I was just fascinated to, as I read around this, to understand just how many benefits um, come from really good argument and and, and disagreement, um, having having your arguments, having your conflicts out in in public, you know, in a productive way, which we'll get onto. Yeah, um, it's just it essentially kind of makes us all smarter, uh, more creative, and uh, and and brings us closer, um, sort of counterintuitively. Um, and that's so and that so that really became the kind of mission of the book was how can we actually have more arguments um but but do it right so it's at, at the heart of it i think the way you framed it if if i'm getting this right is this is really about our inability to disagree well that's exactly right yeah yeah why are we so bad at it and actually you know when i thought about it i thought well um you know, nobody tells you how to do this. No, nobody t- trains you in how to disagree well. We, we can hardly blame ourselves. Um, and, and evolution has not equipped us for it. Um, evil, e- you know, e- your, your brain still treats argument or conflict as if every time somebody disagrees with you, that they're running at you with a club and, and about to knock your head off, right? And that's because for, for most of our uh, history as a species, um, and indeed, even as just as as in human civilization, we've lived among uh, in cultures or groups where there wasn't actually a lot to argue about. <laughs> you know, where where you kind of worship the same gods, where where you agreed on a very kind of fixed set of rules or norms about how to uh, how to how to be. And if people breached those rules, they they were ostracized, excluded, and so on. Um, it's really only relatively recently in our history as a species uh, and as civilization, where we've got used to this idea that uh, uh, lots of people have lots of different views about how to, how to think, how to believe, how to, how to be, um, how to live their lives, and that's okay, they can all be together. Um, and that and the arguing and, and, and talking about how best to live is, is essential to you know, democratic society. That's a pretty recent idea. You've got to think about how you're getting your message across to to people. And that's not just a matter of presentation. That's a matter of listening too. It's a matter of understanding where they're coming from and tuning into how they feel about um, this this issue as well and responding to it in that um, context. And so, you know, disagreement, tough conversations, um, they're never just about the content level. They're always about this relationship level as well. And what you often find is that even very smart people, or maybe particularly very smart people, focus only on that content level, and they don't really 
tune in or, or, or think or reflect on that that deeper relationship level. And as a consequence, you know, all their kind of smart ideas, you know, come to naught um, and they end up just, uh, uh, yeah, just sort of not getting their, their, their smart ideas across. One of the things that we hear an awful lot about, you know, both in business circles, but also in issues of society, issues of politics, issues of relationships, is confirmation bias. It's a reality in the way we interact with people. Can you talk to us about you know the fact that uh, that sort of confirmation bias plays a big role in disagreement, and and what are its dangers? Ah, well, this is really interesting, um, and I'll, I'll talk about its dangers, but I'll, I'll also talk about its its paradoxical um, upside. Um, okay, so so confirmation bias. Essentially speaking, is uh, we have this kind of um, built-in predisposition to, to 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 disproportionately weight evidence that supports our prior point of view, right? Evidence or information that we come across that we think, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That fits in with my hypothesis about what's going on here. Um, I'll take notice of, uh, notice of that. It's clearly very important. <laughs> Whereas. Um, when we come across information that conflicts with or contradicts or undermines our prior point of view, we have a tendency to uh, not just reject it, but not even to see it, to ignore it. Right. So this is a it's a perceptual bias as much as it is an intellectual one. Now, you can you already see the dangers of that. Right. You can become quickly kind of uh, detached from the reality of what's going on if you if you follow your confirmation bias too far, right? If you're only seeing things that support your prior point of view and you're not taking notice of any contradictory evidence, it's very, very hard to change your mind about something, um, even when reality is screaming at you, that's not the way it is, listen, <laughs> right? So so confirmation bias can, can you know, you end up down kind of crazy conspiracy theories or, or you just be flat out wrong about something because you haven't listened to uh, the other side. So um, this, is, this is the ultimate example of what can happen with polarization, right? In media, yeah, so, in opinions, in education, in communities, in groups. And, and what happens with polarization in, 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 in a team um, or, or in a society um, is that confirmation bias is sort of supercharged by um, uh, sometimes called my side bias, but you're, you're kind of motivated to support your side on the issue. And that overrides everything. And that means you really will become very fierce about dismissing any information or point of view or opinion that contradicts your point of view. And, you know, that you're essentially making yourself stupider when you succumb to that, uh, to that bias. Um, so, that's the kind of the, the the danger of confirmation bias. But there's a really interesting, um, slightly kind of different way to look at it that I write about um, in the book. Um, and it comes out of this question that a couple of evolutionary psychologists um, asked, which I thought was a great question, which is, okay, look, um, wh why do we have this um, facility for confirmation bias? It doesn't make sense, right? We, we, first of all, evolution has, has kind of gifted us with this capacity for reason. And that seems to be very, very important to, to human beings. Um, it's a big part of why we've become this kind of unbelievably sort of dominant species on the planet. But why would it make sense to give us that, that capacity and then sort of screw it up at the same time? You know, say, oh, you can have this, this wonderful gift, but it's really, you know, deeply flawed. And they're trying to kind of make sense of this puzzle. And their answer, I think is really interesting. 
which is that it screws us up at the individual level. But if you are uh, applying it in, in a group context uh, under certain conditions, which we'll get onto, it actually makes the group discussion smarter. Right. So let's say you're sitting around a table. You have lots of people with different uh, information and different points of view, different different opinions. The, in the ideal situation, everybody will present their point of view as sort of passionately as forcefully as they can, and then only only back down once they've really given their side a good go. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so it, it wouldn't be a very good discussion if if the moment any kind of information contradicts you or uh, you get a contradictory opinion, you go, okay, yeah, fine, you're right. But they, they, you just wouldn't bottom out this this complex issue that you're, you're trying to bottom out. Um, so it makes sense that everybody's a little bit um, you know, passionate and really kind of believes in their opinion and really pushes it, maybe pushes it a little bit too far, right? So, so it kind of rides their confirmation bias a little bit too far. Um, and that means you, you, you extract the maximum amount of information, points of view, arguments, you get them out onto the table and the strongest ones will will, will come through and the weakest ones will get knocked down because part of the incentives that people have is, is to kind of knock down the other person's argument. So in the, it actually, in the group context, confirmation bias can make the decision, uh, can make the thinking better. Um, it, where, where it goes wrong is, is when we're only thinking about ourselves and, you know, it's very difficult to kind of, just argue uh, with yourself. At least it's it's not as easy as when you're arguing with with people who have different points of view. But it feels like if if you if you do have people with who who like all of us have a certain level of confirmation bias around their own beliefs and whatever the issue might be, if all they're doing is expressing those beliefs without a more open minded approach, then you just end up with a bunch of confusion. There either needs to be a moderator or a willingness to moderate. Right. Or, or, or just a sensibility, you know, a culture of um, we understand that, that there's a balance here. Right. I, all I'm saying is it, it's it's easy to understand that if, if, if nobody backs down from their confirmation bias and, and, right. and everybody's too rigid in thinking, you're not going to get anywhere. But I, I just think it's interesting. That there's, a, there's a mistake on the other side of that ledger, which is if everybody's too willing to back down and nobody kind of really sticks up for their argument at all. And everybody's kind of like hyper rational and says, yes, maybe you're right. Then actually you don't get very far that way either. Um, you need some sort of, um, you need everyone to have an incentive to put their point of view across. The key underlying point here is that I think that rather than flee from disagreement, which we all, I think, are wired to do, and I think professionally uh, and within a culture of a company, we're encouraged to avoid. The, the beauty of this perspective, your perspective, is how do we lean in to disagreement? We have to think about doing it differently. Um, it's, that, it's that willingness to lean in that provides all of the upside opportunity uh, where today culturally we're encouraged to lean out, right? I, I think that's exactly right. Okay. And this is a, a, a big kind of bugbear of mine or a big kind of, you know, not a bugbear, a kind of a, a belief or a kind of mission of mine. And it's, it's a big part of the book, which is this idea that collaboration is about everybody kind of rowing in the same, di same direction and rushing towards agreement as quickly as possible 
is deadly. <laughs> it's fatal, right? You actually want the different people in the room or the different departments in, 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 the, in the company to be pushing their own point of view, even when they're in tension and sometimes in direct conflict with other parts of the company. Now, as I said, like in any discussion, you can take that too far and you know things start to become very kind of like territory bound and, and siloed and so on. But you do want some uh, tension and, and, and conflict so on if you're going to create really energetic, uh, creative, innovative um, collaborations. Um, and I think it's something that ad agencies at their best have been very, very good at. Um, and, and now, sometimes they, they took it too far. Some agencies were famous for their kind of incredibly confrontational cultures, which, right. you know, discriminate against certain personality types, and maybe certain, uh, maybe against women too. It tended to be kind of very male, I, I think, that, that approach. But there was something to be said for, for, for tension, you know, creative tension. We're much more likely to emphasize getting along, um, agree and consensus than we used to be. Okay, maybe that balance did need to be corrected. I think it probably did. But there's a there's a problem, there's a there's a danger that we we overcorrect um, and that we're neglecting the benefits of a, a really productive disagreement. How can conflict bring us closer? Ah, right, yeah. Um so one of the reasons that we avoid conflict is that we worry that it will put a strain on our relationship with the, the person or the people that we're disagreeing with, right? You think, okay, mm, I, I, I want to say this thing and I want to disagree, but I, I, I'm worried that they're going to get upset and we're going to fall out, right? That's a totally reasonable thing to, to be worried about. But we should also be worried about what happens when you avoid the disagreement. Um, because when you avoid the disagreement, the disagreement doesn't go away, it just goes underground. Um, and it often becomes passive aggression of one form or another, either between two people, you know, or, or at scale in a company. It's, it's office politics, right? That's basically our, our word for, for passive aggression at, at scale. Um, and that's actually much more corrosive to relationships than, um, than having uh, arguments, you know, at least kind of good-natured um, argument. So when you're in an argument, you, you are you are finding out what that other person really thinks, you know, really feels about something, particularly if there's some emotion involved, right? This is why we don't want arguments to be hyper-rational all the time. Um, the, the veil of um, politeness or passivity that, that, that you know, we usually use, even, even in kind of very, you know, in intimate relationships, is stripped away. And you get a little glimpse of that person's heart, uh, you know, and soul. You see what they're what they're really thinking, and 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 it might not be what you thought they were thinking, even if you think you, you know them well. Um, and and so when you do that, when you do it without kind of having a nasty argument or a shouting argument, but just you know, you, you're, if you're frequently having small kind of you know relatively low stakes disagreements, you're just keeping up to date on how that other person thinks and feels. Now, I think that applies to a team as much as it does to to a couple, right? Um, if you are not having your arguments out on the table, you're not really understanding where those other people are coming from, um, and that means that you're not you're not as you don't feel as close to them as you would do otherwise. So you can be very polite and kind of distanced and avoid any disagreement, but actually you end up feeling emotionally distanced from those people too, uh, and, and eventually you start to you can't really engage with them intellectually either. Um, and, and it becomes a kind of very formal type of relationship. The best teams I've worked in, I'm sure this is true of you, right? The best teams I've worked in, people have been so kind of candid with each other and so honest. Um, 
they can do it in a in a nice way, in a loving way, in a funny way. Humor is very important here. Um, but they don't hide their disagreements. They say right out, now oh, come on, you know, this is this is rubbish. No, I don't believe that at all. And in the really good teams with a strong culture, it, it, that works incredibly well and it sort of tightens the relationships. Yeah, I've always found that to be the truth. And I think one example of that, which I've always loved, and I believe this is true, I've read it in a couple of different places, that in, and it's just an example of, of what you're talking about, is inside McKinsey, they have a different approach to developing strategy. Whereas in the advertising industry, we tend to um, spend our time developing a single strategy that we then bring into uh, into a into a room to present it to creatives or or to clients. At McKinsey, what they tend to do is they encourage people to bring in multiple strategies, and the goal of the meeting is not to advocate for a strategy, but it's to let everybody argue against the strategy. And this is similar to the Warren Buffett example, which we'll talk about in a second. But the idea is that they 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 tee up hypotheses. And the the strategy that that's that survives the debate, the heated debate, the objective debate uh, in the room is the one that moves forward. So it's not about the favorite, but it's the one that survives. And it survives based upon sort of collaborative conflict being leveraged and that and that that allows people to to it almost is where you're able to leverage the advantage of people disagreeing in order to create a better product. Yeah, and I think collaborative conflict is is what this is about, right? Because usually those those two things are opposed to each other in the way people use those words. They say, "Well, are we collaborating here, or are we arguing, or are we in conflict?" Um, no, conflict at its best, argument at its best, is a form of collaboration. In fact, it's an essential form of collaboration, right? It, it improves your thinking and it improves your your creativity. Yeah, so. Um, I've mentioned a couple more examples, right? So, so Warren Buffett talks about uh, um, his, his the way he approaches acquisitions, or, or the way he wants companies to approach acquisitions. When, when a big company makes an acquisition, right, that they, they hire a, um, a, a bank, Goldman Sachs, to advise on the acquisition. Um, you know, should we do it or not? But of course, the bank has a fee. If the acquisition goes through, they get a fee. So they have a very strong incentive to say, "Yeah, we think this is a good idea. You should, you should go, definitely go ahead and buy this company." So Buffett says, "Look, clearly there's a problem. There. There's an inbuilt kind of um, um, bias. So my advice is to hire another advisor um, and give them a financial, uh, give them a fee if the deal doesn't go through." <laughs> so the genius of that is that he recognizes. He's basically harnessing bias, like we talked about earlier, right? Harnessing confirmation bias. He's saying, right, we need incentives on both sides here, um, so so that we can get we can drag the best arguments out of out of both sides, and then we'll have kind of much richer, more intelligent uh, debate. Um, and similar to your to your uh, McKinsey example, one of the examples I came across recently was um, in Reed Hastings' book, Reed Hastings, the, the founder and um, head of Netflix, um, he introduced this practice um, called mining for dissent. Um, he actually introduced it after he made a huge error, which nearly crashed the company. And he realized he needed to get better at hearing dis people who disagreed with him because pe clearly people had been too polite to say, 
you know, we, we think this is a, a stupid idea. So now he, he does this thing and they all do this thing where if somebody's got a big decision to make, they kind of lay out their, their argument for it. And they say, this is why, why I'm doing it. This is what I think. Here's all the information. Um, and then you you actively go out to the rest of the company and you look for counter arguments. You say, essentially, tell me why I'm wrong. Now, right. you, you're perfectly welcome to listen to all those arguments and, and put them aside. This is not an exercise in, in consensus. This is not, okay, well, we'll find somewhere in the middle here. It's perfectly fine to say, okay, no, don't agree with all of that. I'm going ahead. But you have heard all your arguments and you have thought about them, you've reflected on them. Um, and that's very important to, to the quality of your decision making. And it's it's really interesting to me because I think the I think the the expectation, we talked we touched on this earlier, that we're we're encouraged within companies to avoid conflict. We're in, we're encouraged as as employees to to respect uh, other people's opinions. And, and and that basically means don't get into arguments, don't get into heated discussion. But another example that you bring up in your book is about Wikipedia. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, just so just briefly a recap of that, that Wikipedia study, where what the, the scientists did was, um, they looked at a huge um, database of Wikipedia edits on uh, Wikipedia pages, which involved some sort of um, political or social issue where there's a lot of uh, kind of red-blue, in American terms, you know, red-blue disagreement, um, and using machine learning to to kind of um, understand and analyze a massive database, they, they were able to kind of code the different editors, um, red or blue, because um, these pages are, you know, edited by people who are often, you know, politically aligned one way or the other. Um, and what they found was that the pages where there was the most polarization where you could really see kind of clear lines between red points of view and blue points of view um, were the best page, the best quality pages. Um, Wikipedia ranks its own pages according to quality. So that's the, the, the data they used there. Um, and so it was a really interesting finding, which kind of confirmed a lot of the, the, the arguments of the book, which is that under the right conditions, um, the more kind of vigorous your, your argument, um, the better the, the thinking, the better the quality of decision-making will be. But obviously those conditions are really important. So in Wikipedia, there's a couple of things to, to, to note about that. What, one is that they were all committed to the same goal. I mean, you don't spend hours and hours editing Wikipedia pages unless you want the page to be good, right? Usually, right? Um, and I think people who who do it for other reasons are very kind of quickly excluded from, from the process, right? So these are people who care about the quality of the page, but they also care about getting their side across, right? But they're focused on the same goal. So that's number one. Number two is that there's a process, there's a kind of agreed set of rules in Wikipedia, quite an arcane and kind of complicated one, but there's a set of rules for, for making those edits. So this is not just a bunch of people kind of shouting at each other. It's not like Twitter, right? Um, and so both, both those things are, are I think, transportable principles um, that you need to have an agreed goal and you need to have some sort of, uh, if not explicit rules, although they can be useful, some sort of cultural consensus about this is how we do productive argument. Um, and I think in ad, ad agencies, you know, the focus has to be on the work. And in the best agencies, there's just been this tacit understanding or explicit understanding that we can argue the hell out of each other but that, but that's because we both care about the quality of the work that comes out the other side. If we are all agreed on that, that that's the most important thing, that means we can really get into our arguments. And the more we get into our arguments, 
actually the better the quality of the thinking will be. I think this is just a, an important point I want to touch on here, which is this kind of dual meaning of diversity. So one of the big changes in, in the ad industry and across different industries has been a much greater emphasis on diversity, all right, which is a fantastic thing. Um, and we're much more likely to, to emphasize uh, the importance of, of a, a, a culturally, racially, uh, gender uh, diverse team than we used to be. But there's another type of diversity, which is cognitive diversity, right? A group of people who have, think in different ways, have different approaches, just kind of come at things from, from different angles. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that shows that more cognitively diverse teams are smarter teams. Ad agencies are traditionally have been very good at that, right? It's, you see it just in the basic structure of the art director copywriter team. You know, you have one member of a team who thinks verbally and one member of a team who thinks visually, you bring them together and you get something special, right? And you, then you build it out to the account manager and the planner. And, and so structurally, we were structured around kind of cognitive, cognitive diversity. Um, now, cognitive diversity doesn't really, you don't really see its benefits unless people are disagreeing with each other. You know, so you can have the most cognitively and ethnically and, and culturally diverse team sitting around a table, but if they're all nodding along with each other, you know, or they're just agreeing with the most dominant person in the room, then you're not getting any of the benefits of it, right? Um, and so just learning to, to, to get our points of view out there and let them kind of smash up against each other and let them mingle and let them fizz with each other. It's just an essential part of, of, of collaboration and, and creativity. Um, and I think it's one that we're slightly losing touch with now that we have this great emphasis, almost kind of nervous emphasis on, on getting along and, and, and being nice to each other. Look, I'm all for being nice. I like nice people. <laughs> but um, I think if we go too far in the direction of let's just avoid disagreement and confrontation, then we're essentially making ourselves a little bit dimmer. I think all of us in, in the UK, there was the Brexit uh, issue. And I think that uh, in the US, we've had so many ups and downs with politics, as you guys have over there, too. And, and there's been many books written on why people make the political decisions and why people vote on issues or individuals in a certain way. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about the rural versus the urban divide in terms of attitudes or levels of education um, contributing to how people vote and how people think about issues. But it's interesting in, in this sort of conversation about conflict, intelligence isn't sort of really the uh, the cure it isn't that you become more educated and by being more educated you become you become immediately more informed and less biased that's not the case here this is i think some of the work that you report in your book is about the fact that even the most intelligent and educated people they're they're just better at persuading themselves that they're right well yeah i mean i, I can't put it much better than that i think that's exactly uh, exactly right, um, and this is just this is based on 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 s studies. Um, it also sort of makes intuitive sense to me because I've seen it happening so, so many times. Very smart people can make themselves stupid in in a, in a particular way, a way that's particularly true of smart people, um, uh, which is that they are they're, they're better than in quotes non-smart people um, at finding reasons to justify their own position. 
Um, now, sometimes that's good, but often it means that if they start out taking a, a mistaken or a false position, they're just much better at defending it than somebody who's not as articulate or educated or used to the kind of you know cut and thrust of, of debate. Um, and and I think you know just generally we tend to overestimate people's verbal fluency um, uh, and and underestimate their their uh, capacity for self reflection. Um, so and I, I you see this in advertising. I'm sure you see it in other industries as well. That the, the people who are very good at articulating their point of view, who are verbally fluent, who are very convincing, charismatic, likable, um, are often the people who do really well, but they're not, they're not necessarily the people who make the right decisions. Right. Um, and we tend to confuse one or the other. It also becomes kind of tangled up with other cultural biases, right, towards men over women or white people over black people, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think intelligence is 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 great. I, again, like nothing against intelligence, but what I look for increasingly when I'm sort of assessing people um, is kind of meta rationality. Now, how good are they actually at stepping aside from their own point of view or their own perspective and considering it? How, how and this is a crucial one, how well do they listen to others? Right? So, so they can be very kind of dazzling in their presentation and then I see other people speak and other people put their point of view. And I often see that that person's kind of switch off. And I would kind of mentally mark them down at that point. Um, for me, meta-rationality, meta as I'm calling it, is ability to kind of reflect on your own thinking um, and to hear, really hear the points of view of other people and also to tune into that relationship level as well as the content of the conversation. I think all of these things are, are hugely important and, and uh, undervalued. But they're not, they're not attributes that are celebrated in modern media, whether it's on the internet or whether it's on news or whether it's in politics or whether it's in celebrity. That, that sort of ability to, be, ability to be more reflective, to recognize that you can, that you, that you can learn from the, the viewpoint of every individual isn't celebrated in culture. So we come up with hothead politicians, hothead creatives, hothead celebrities who, who um, draw the bees to the honey and become the, become what we respect in culture and in business. Right. That's right. And um, we sort of revert to, almost these uh, kind of primeval instincts, which yeah. is, we, you know, we defer to the most dominant person in the room. Often that's a man, but not always, you know, somebody who kind of projects certainty and confidence, uh, we, we just feel drawn to them, right? Often. Um, and, but actually there's no, there's no real correlation between a person's confidence and certainty and their judgment. We just we think there is. We kind of assume there is. We some trigger. We trigger some sort of evolutionary instinct to say, "Oh, well, that person must know what they're doing." Um, and I would just kind of, you know, urge people to just try and, you know, turn that instinct off and just say, "Well, you know, um, what is this person saying? Are, are, are they really capable of, of of reflecting on what they're saying?" And you see that, you know, this is why disagreement and argument is so important because that's the crucible for all this, right? In, in a, it's only really an open debate that people's capacity for self-reflection and listening is tested and becomes visible. Um, and so again, it's just one of the kind of many benefits of, of, of 
productive disagreement, um, which is you kind of, you see people for who they are, you know, and go, go back to this thing about conflict is information. Um, you, you kind of get a, re- a more kind of truthful perspective on, on, on the people in the room. Um, and, and, and when it works well, it's, that's actually a, a marvelous thing. Is compromise a place to get to, or is compromise again, is, is, or, or do we tend to think of a, a result that's different than the result we want as always being a compromised result? And is that the wrong way to look at it? It's, I mean, I, compromise is, is, can be good, right? And, and, and certainly it's, it's preferable to. It's almost uh, a bad word, and it, it just when yeah. as I think about it more, it's like it's always it's a diluted result. It feels like, in the interest of of keeping, um, keeping the peace. It's preferable to um, stalemate or <laughs> that's true, yeah. you know, an all out battle. Um, but it's it shouldn't be your kind of primary goal. Um, what you're looking for is something more creative than that, actually. A disagreement should be inherently creative, right? You know, creativity, as you know, is about bringing different ideas together and, and, and you know, blending them and turning them into something that didn't exist before, right? A bit of information or an insight or an image, you know, and you bring it together with this other thing and bingo, you've got this kind of this new thing that didn't exist before. And that's essentially what the, a model of, of disagreement too. Um, you're bringing two different points of view, two different arguments or, or more together. And rather than just sort of finding a, a halfway house between them where nobody's satisfied and you haven't really created anything new, um, try and move up to some sort of higher level that didn't, didn't exist before and say, actually, we can go over here. Um, and I think that that idea of, of you know disagreement and argument being creative is is just more exciting to me, more interesting to me than um, you know let's find a let's find a compromise. So when you look at, I'd just love to get your perspective because I'm sure it was a, it's it's a contributing factor to your thinking in the book. I'm curious about what you see as uh, what your thoughts are on modern media. Yeah, I I, I think the in in the book I talk about. Um, productive disagreement um, generally, and obviously I talk about it in the context of online media, um, although I only spend some time on that. Um, most of the book is about uh, human to human, you know, um, workplace and, and family uh, uh, disagreement and conflict. Um, and part of the reason for that is I actually think it's very, very difficult to have productive disagreement um, on social media, um, what what tends to happen is that you get a, a, a very a lot of very low context um, points of view all kind of smashed together. It's very difficult to establish a relationship with people uh, with your interlocutors. Okay, um, and when you're only seeing the point of view and you don't have that connection to the people that you're talking with, either because you're not in the room with them or because they're complete strangers and they're just kind of you know flashing across your screen, um, then it, you, you tend to have a much less kind of nuanced 
um, mindset. You you go straight to the thing that you're dis- the point of conflict, and you just kind of hammer away at that. You tend to be much less reflective yourself, and of course, you're also just exposed to lots of bad faith actors, and some of them may not even be human. So really, it's just a kind of <laughs> it's quite a chaotic um, scenario in which to in which to have your your disagreements, and it's very hard to have engaged disagreements and arguments. Um, and so when people say to me, you know, how should we have productive disagreements on on Twitter, or whatever? I, you know, I generally say just don't. Um, but um, <laughs> I, but I, but then I, I do have them sometimes. And, and, and as far as you can, you can apply some of the principles that that I've talked about, um, and and sort of try and make connections with with people before you get into it, and use humour and so on. Um, and sometimes you you can have productive arguments, but it's but it's very hard because yeah, it's this pretty kind of um, chaotic, deliberately triggering um, environment. It's really almost a giant machine designed to create unproductive arguments. It's Ian Leslie, writer, author, and communications expert. Uh, his blog, by the way, you can check out. It's called The Ruffian, R-U-F-F-I-A-N. And his latest book is Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Fergus. Really enjoyed it. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.